quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us. And TGIF, what a week it's been. Spanning tech market elation to interest rate frustration to a grimmer will-they-default sensation. I've rolled enough on that this week, so I'm substituting some emojis for our First Move Friday Wall Street Pleasure Plane Index. Don't get too excited. Making investors happy. More evidence that AI is the new tech growth engine. Chipmaker NVIDIA's stock soaring 24% on buoyant demand. Its market cap now surpassing that of both Facebook, Chief Meta and Tesla and creating discomfort. Meanwhile, traders increasingly pricing in additional Fed rate hikes with a more than 50 percent chance now of a rate hike next month. And then causing serious pain, you've probably guessed, the still unresolved U.S. debt ceiling crisis. Less than a week to go before the U.S. apparently runs out of cash and still no deal to raise the borrowing limit. Reports, though, do say progress is being made on a two-year deal. Both sides are set to work through the long weekend, but at least as of yesterday... That's Thursday. The U.S. had less than $50 billion of cash left on hand. That was down more than $20 billion from the day before. So clearly time is running out. And as we await new developments, I'll give you a look at this. Wall Street futures and Europe higher amid reports of deal-making progress. After today's close, U.S. markets won't open again until Tuesday. There's a long weekend here in the U.S., that's just two days before the June 1st Treasury set deadline. A busy Friday indeed. And let's begin with those debt ceiling talks. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, you can eye roll now rather than me. Um, but we do seem to be closer on reaching some kind of deal. A two-year extension, which would push them yeah. beyond the 2024 election, I believe. But some concerns debate over work requirements yeah. to get federal support. So we're seeing where there seems to be a consensus coming together um, on spending caps, except for the military and for veterans. Um, and then there's also this movement from the White House. You know, it looks like maybe offering up $10 billion in IRS funding that has been the bane of Republicans, right? They, they hated that the IRS got so much new funding to modernize and to be able to enforce rich tax cheats. And so maybe some of that money could be take 10 billion, I think is the number they're talking about, moved from, from that pile, from the IRS enforcement pile, the IRS operations pile, and moved over to cover some other um, some other spending cut areas the Democrats are, uh, find important. So maybe there that shows there's some compromise and some movement, something that Kevin McCarthy can take back uh, to Republicans. But you're right, still a lot of concern um, from the left about any work requirements um, for for food stamps and for Medicaid. Look, they say that's just that's not solving America's debt and deficits problem. That's just that's just you know hurting the poor. So that's a philosophical debate that is still happening there overall. But we are seeing some movement. And I think that is what is so important. And when you look at markets, Julia, I'm worried about the calendar. I'm worried about the whip, whether they can whip these votes. But markets are saying failure is not an option. The United States government is not stupid enough to actually go over the line and trigger a default. 
I hope they're right. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, um, your point about that's not solving the broader problem, nor is this crazy debate over what's effectively spending on a credit card and then saying, hey, I'm not paying it back. Yeah. None of these rules surrounding this make sense for promoting further fiscal responsibility. But that's a separate point. I yep. agree with you. Um, investors all the way along have said, you know, you're the biggest, deepest bond market in the world. You're one of the biggest creditors in the world, uh, debtors in the world, forgive me. Um, don't blow it. And it's, it's incredibly important. I mean, you know, I worry about a loss of American prestige. I mean, I totally. think now that you've done this in 2011, 2013, and again now, I mean, you've heard some rumblings of, uh, around, around the credit agencies of like, wait a minute. I mean, if this is going to be a feature, not a bug of the American political system, does America deserve a triple cre- AAA credit rating, you know, or, or, or is this something, is this a risk, a risk going forward? So I think that there needs to be a bigger Two big discussions. One about debt and deficits and the drivers of it. Drivers, as we know, are health care, retirement, interest on the debt, and tax revenues that are too low. Okay, so that's take those four things. You've got to figure it out, right? Maybe you need a bipartisan blue ribbon commission to do that. Uh, you know, and the second thing is the debt ceiling is not as helpful as, as it was in terms of fiscal, fiscal restraint 100 years ago when it was put in. Maybe we need to ha- have bigger discussions about making sure the debt ceiling is not a political football. Maybe that should be taken off the field, too. Yes. Christine, you get my vote. Put you in charge. Sort them all out. Thank you very much. I don't want that job. No, I know. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yes. Christine Williams, have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. To Ukraine now and a deadly airstrike on a medical clinic in the city of Dnipro, which left the building ablaze. Among 23 people injured, two are children, one aged six and another aged three. And Ukraine has been accused of attacking Russia's Belgorod province once again. Sam Kiley reports from East Ukraine. Once again, a night of bombardment from Russia involving cruise missiles and drones has taken civilian lives, this time in Dnipro, where at least one person has been confirmed dead, uh, several missing following uh, this bombardment, uh, which hit a neurological clinic. Now, uh, it could have been a lot worse, potentially, with the attacks in the past have been focused on residential buildings with much higher uh, death tolls. Uh, a number of people, more than a dozen, reportedly uh, injured in this latest attack uh, as the uh, Ukrainians have been accused of continuing cross-border bombardments uh, from their northern border area into the Russian province of uh, Belgorod. This is a claim being made by the Russian governor there. That would be consistent with the pattern in the past in which the Ukrainians are now hitting back at cross-border uh, artillery strikes that they've been suffering for more than a year from that self same area. And on top of that, there has been a mysterious strike much deeper uh, into Russia with a fire Uh, at a facility with neither side uh, really explaining uh, what has gone on there. But uh, the Ukrainians are conducting a destabilizing campaign intended to keep the Russians uh, off balance as they get underway with uh, what may be the early stages of their summer offensive. Sam Kiley, CNN in eastern Ukraine. And since um, filed that report, a second person is known to have died at that medical facility. And Ukraine says Russian forces have used around 1,200 Iranian drones since the war began. As Salma Abdelaziz reports, ships and planes have somehow found a way of making deliveries into the country largely unnoticed. These calm waters are home to a secret Russia doesn't want you to know. Experts say Iran is quietly sending weapons on ships like this one across the Caspian Sea 
to replenish arms for Moscow's war on Ukraine. Concealing movement at sea is considered nefarious and potentially a violation of international law. But in the Caspian Sea, there's a growing number of gaps in vessels' tracking data, known as AIS, with a more than 50% increase in ships hiding their movement between August and September of 2022, according to maritime trafficking data. Most of the vessels going dark are Iranian or Russian flag tankers. The timing is suspicious too, this practice picking up last summer, just as White House officials revealed that Russia had purchased hundreds of drones from Iran. So why would these ships want to hide their movements? Maritime security analyst Martin Kelly tells us it is likely because of what these vessels are carrying. There's a correlation between Russia requesting drones from Iran, dark port calls in the Caspian Sea, and an increase in dark AIS activity. And that, to me, is a key indicator of of these three aspects combined that, that something was going on, probably the export of Iranian drones to Russia. This heat map from Lloyd's List shows where most of those gaps in AIS are concentrated, mostly near Iran's Amirabad port and Russia's Astrakhan port, where ships appear to be turning off their data on approach and going dark for extended periods of time. Now, using data like this and expert analysis, CNN was able to identify eight vessels that exhibited suspicious behavior in the Caspian Sea. This is one such vessel. It's a Russian flag tanker that was seen in early January, leaving Iran's Amirabad port making its way across the Caspian Sea to Russia's Astrakhan port. Now, we cannot independently verify what this tanker was carrying, but experts tell us the shipment was likely linked to the arms trade. And there are signs that Tehran could be airmailing arms too. The US and Ukraine both accused Tehran of sending supplies to Russia by plane. CNN analyzed the tracking data of four Iranian cargo planes flagged by the U.S. Commerce Department for potentially carrying drone shipments. Collectively, the aircraft made at least 85 trips to Moscow airports between May 2022 and March 2023. Iran has admitted that it sold a small number of drones to Russia, but it says the sale was a few months prior to the war in Ukraine. CNN has reached out to Iran and Russia for comment, but has yet to receive a response. But given the much larger volume cargo ships can carry, the Caspian Sea corridor is likely the primary conduit. And experts say it is the new frontier for weapons trade between Moscow and Tehran, tucked away from Western interference. It provides an easy avenue for sanctions evasion, expert Anissa Tabrizi says. I think the perception in Moscow is that Iran can teach a lot to Moscow about how to go and how to uh, still have a significant economy even when sanctions are imposed. And there is very little the U.S. and its allies can do to stop it. And more could be on the way. Intelligence officials warned in November Iran plans to send ballistic missiles, ammunition and more sophisticated drones to Moscow. A bustling corridor, potentially providing a much-needed arsenal critical to Russia's land grab in Ukraine. Sam Abdulaziz, CNN, London. 
And terrifying moments for passengers aboard a packed plane preparing to land in South Korea. I can barely look, but just take a look at this. Airline officials say a man on an Asiana Airlines flight appeared to open a door while the plane was still hundreds of meters in the air. Videos circulated on social media show passengers being pummeled as air rushes into the cabin. Now, thankfully, the plane was able to land safely. And Paula Hancock has more details. It is every traveller's worst nightmare, an emergency door opening on the plane while still in the air. This is what happened to an Asiana flight today here in South Korea. Now, it was supposed to be less than an hour in flight from Jeju to Daegu and did land safely at 12.45 p.m. Now, Asiana said that it was about two to three minutes before landing. The flight was still about 700 feet, more than 200 meters away from ground. And that is when a passenger opened that emergency door. Now, you can see from the vi videos just how much the passengers are being buffeted by the strong gusts of wind as the flight lands. Now, there were 200 people on board. We understand that 12 suffered from hyperventilation. Nine of the 12 went to hospital, but we're being told by officials that they were only minor injuries. But what we are hearing from aviation experts is that even though a passenger, we understand, opened the door, he should not have been able to do that while the flight was still going. It seems implausible that the door could be opened in the first place and then against the airstream, um, technically impossible. But somehow or other, it has, has happened, uh, possibly some malfunction. Daegu police say they have arrested the passenger and he has confessed to opening the door, but has not given uh, any reason as to why it took place. Now, at this point, the government has opened an investigation to find out why it happened, how it happened and why technically it was even able to happen while the flight was still in the air. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And uh, brave people as well that were videoing that. I think I'd have been too busy screaming. OK, coming up on First Move, brace for the AI wave. We'll be picking the winners and losers in tech's new arm race. Plus, maybe medical science. And we are the real winners. A new drug to fight drug-resistant bacteria discovered by AI. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Shares of U.S. chipmaker Marvel jumping 17% pre-market on a forecast that its AI-tied revenue will double for the year. And on Thursday this week, speciality chipmaker NVIDIA surged nearly 25% after posting a blockbuster quarter fueled by the AI boom. Its stock now up more than 160% this year. And it's not just the chipmakers reaping all the benefits. Wedbush Security says, quote, we estimate that this is an $800 billion market opportunity over the next decade as this AI game of thrones plays out across the enterprise and consumer tech space. And joining us now to discussed. Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Dan, a pleasure. Happy Friday. Um, I do think NVIDIA was a wow moment for the market and highlighted the amount of interest, but also money that's being pumped now into AI of all kinds. Look, I mean, NVIDIA is the foundation. And for, in my opinion, 22 years covering tech, I've never seen a large cap tech company raise guidance by 60% ever, including the bubble. And I should, I think it shows, Julia, 
This is an AI revolution that's here. This is not a hype cycle like metaverse, crypto and others. And I think this is really what, you know, what I view as sort of just the next phase of what, what's the fourth industrial revolution playing out. For NVIDIA specifically, though, it's tied to the specific chips that they produce and, and why they're needed um, to help drive the, the tools tied to artificial intelligence. Are there other competitors out there, Dan? Or is the point here that, yes, they're raising guidance by that much simply because they're the only game in town, at least for now? Well, right now, they're the only game in town. I mean, if you need a chip from a GPU perspective, I mean, you're calling the video. Yeah. But when I look at AMD, I look at Marvell, I look at, oh, but there's a handful of other chip players Look, I think this is really going to be sort of that Game of Thrones playing on not just on the software side, Microsoft, Google, and others, but on the chip side. And I think investors right now, I mean, this is a green light uh, in terms of what I view as an $800 billion incremental opportunity over the next decade for tech. Morgan Stanley put out a note this week looking at the phases of growth and monetization in AI, and they compared it to the phases that we went through with the mobile internet. It sort of ties to the point you're making. Um, chips first, infrastructure and devices was like the next wave, and then software and services. NVIDIA clearly is phase one of that, which is chips. Do you see this playing out in a similar way to, to the mobile internet? I feel like in some ways the overlay of AI over the existing technologies that we have provide us with at least more clarity to some degree of the next five to 10 years than we had with, with mobile internet. Yeah, I, look, I think you, you nail it. And in terms of the point, I think the first derivatives, chips, then you look at names, look right now, Microsoft, Google, I think Meta is going to be a significant beneficiary of this. I think Apple is going to be a beneficiary because of the install base. Then you start to look on the software side, names like salesforce.com, MongoDB, I mean, this is really now going to start to play out. You look at that NVIDIA, that's the first step. You know, but, but ultimately, this is really an arms race, unlike we've seen probably going back to the late 90s in terms of build out of the Internet. What about others? A name that's clearly um, growing, big in the cloud already. I mean, I think Microsoft, Google, I think are names that we're very comfortable with now in the AI space. What do you think about Amazon, Dan? Because I know certainly from what I've read about what they're doing, it's about the importance of training these AI systems and the data sets behind them. And from some of the errors and the hallucinations that we've seen, it's the training that's critical um, in order to provide accuracy, efficiency in some of these systems. Um, where does Amazon lie? Yeah, look, I think right now Amazon does lie behind Google and Microsoft from a cloud perspective in terms of AI technology. I'd be shocked if Jassy and Amazon doesn't do an acquisition in the AI space in order, just given the massive opportunity within that mode on cloud. Look, you could argue for Amazon. I mean, this could start to add potentially $40, $50 per share on a sum of the parts to the valuation if they execute. And I think that's why right now, this is a very important time for Amazon to play catch up to Nadella and Microsoft uh, out in Redmond, because right now they're popping champagne, given what they're seeing on AI. <laughs> yeah, the excitement surrounding this is um, monumental, to your point. Um, we had um, a representative of Adobe on earlier this week talking about Firefly, this um, AI-driven tool that allows you to adapt images. And I saw that you tweeted, or at least someone asked you your view and you tweeted about them. What's your take on this and how important perhaps this is for the company and where they're headed? Yeah, look, I think Adobe, they've laid out a great strategy. 
and and you cannot argue with the success they have. It's one of the best franchises out there. I'm not convinced right here that they can be as much a beneficiary of some of the cloud players. I think they got some more wood to chop. They've laid out the blueprint, okay, in terms of the strategy. But it's not like the Microsoft, the Google, the Meta, the NVIDIA, where I view as the first derivative. I view Adobe as maybe a second, third derivative with a little more uphill battle to get there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to get your take um, on some of the differences in these, because I think this is what investors are trying to decide now. Do you just buy them all and ride a wave or even distinguish between some of these names today? Um, you wrote a great primer, which I recommend people read. And one of the things that leapt out at me was um, the difference between chat GPT three and a half and chat GPT four. And we've talked a bit about this um, on the show because I had Reid Hoffman on who wrote a book with chat GPT four equivalent. Um, 82 percent less likely to respond to requests for disallowed content. 40% more likely to produce factual responses. Um, it's getting better and better incredibly quickly, Dan. Um, while the good sides get better, so do the dark sides. How do we best regulate this? And is this going to be a problem anytime soon for these big players? Look, regulation is going to be there. And that's going to be a concern within the Beltway, within Brussels and elsewhere. But ultimately, as we know, regulation, I mean, that's going to be snail pace, right? So it's not going to keep up with the technology. There's going to be bad actors. There's going to be froth. But that's why, to me, you stick with the winners. And what I view is the AI basket to play what's really a new gold rush. And I think what we saw in the video, this is not a bubble. This is real. Yeah. Good for investors, Dan. I'm a little bit scared for uh, humanity at times with the, uh, with the darker sides. And to your point, I completely agree with you. Good luck, regulators. That's all I can say. Yes. Dan Ives, thank you so much for that. Managing thank Director you. at Wedbush Securities. Have a great weekend. Yeah. And all this reminds me of the conversation we had with AI guru and former Google CEO and chairman Eric Schmidt, if you remember, who was on the program last week. And this is exactly what he said, seeing huge potential benefits across various fields, including the pharmaceutical industry. Just listen to what he had to say. In science and in particular in biology and drug discovery, people are using these technologies to advance solutions to problems that have bedeviled humanity for decades and years and centuries. This is all good. Can you imagine having a universal AI tutor that speaks to each and every child and each and every adult in their own language and figures out how to make them better educated, smarter, better citizens in their countries and that sort of thing? Can you imagine lifting up the standard of medical care globally so that everyone has the access to a pretty good doctor? Uh, it, there's evidence now that these systems can pass medical exams and legal exams. These are going to be incredible amplifiers for the people who are trying to help people, educate people globally. And I defy you to complain about that. Yeah, we're not complaining, and it's already happening. Researchers say by using AI, they found an antibiotic that works against a drug-resistant bacteria. It's actually so precise that it only targets the problem pathogen, leaving beneficial bacteria in place. Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, this was a wow moment for me when I read this this morning. Um, I'm very excited. Just start by explaining what difference artificial intelligence is making to this kind of discovery. Julia, if you can imagine you're a researcher in a lab without artificial intelligence and you want to test out a bunch of different drugs, a bunch of different chemicals to see if they can work against this horrible antibiotic resistant bacteria. You want to nail that bacteria. You want to just kill it. And you're trying out one after another. It is going to take you 
weeks and months, maybe years to do, say, a hundred million of those. AI in a much shorter time, in maybe days or weeks, can test out way more than that, maybe even billions of chemicals. So to the point that you were making with your guest earlier, AI just makes everything go much faster. And we really need an approach for this bacteria. So this bacteria is so dangerous. Let's talk a bit about it. So it's called the Cinebacter Baumaniae, sorry about that, and it develops antibiotic resistance. In other words, it becomes resistant to antibiotics, and it can cause infections in the blood, urinary tract, it can cause pneumonia. It's found mostly in hospitals, so people with catheters, people in the ICU, people who are the most vulnerable, and here's probably the worst of it, or part of the worst of it, Julia, it clings to surfaces. So you can wash, 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 and scrub, 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 but you know, if, a, if someone in a hospital misses a spot, this bacteria can just grow and grow and grow. So what these researchers did is they got a mouse, they gave it a wound infection, a skin infection with this bacteria, and they found that a particular chemical worked against it. So Julia, I want to be clear, this is a great day if you're a mouse. It's a great day if you're a wounded mouse. This is not going to be on the market anytime soon, but it is great proof of principle. And hopefully this will end up some being, you know, becoming a drug that you or I could take if God forbid we got this infection. Julia? Yeah. Yeah, that name is um, pretty unbearable to say as well. So I'm glad you did it, not me. Um, so what are we talking? Are we talking years then before we, we get these um, for, for use and prescription from a doctor, for example? And do you think it is an avenue for, for sort of tailoring other forms of antibiotics to, to tackle other pathogens? So I'll answer your second question first, Julia. Yeah. So absolutely, this makes the whole process much easier and much quicker. But here's why it would likely still be years before it came on the market. You have to, just because it can kill the bacteria, doesn't mean it would hurt some other part of us. They have to make sure that if you're going to give this to humans, it'll kill the bacteria, but that it's not toxic in some other way. So that is a very, very long time of testing. Secondly, and you know more about this, Julia, than I do because you're the business expert and I'm not, you have to convince a pharmaceutical company that it is worth spending money on this. This is antibiotics are not huge money makers. Um, this would be used for, you know, in big picture, a relatively small number of people because not tons and tons of people get this infection compared to some other bacterial infections. So you'd have to convince a pharmaceutical company to spend money on it. And both of those things can take quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's such a vital point. If the money's not there to find a solution, a solution isn't found. But this is a, a way to do that far more efficiently and perhaps help people in these rare circumstances. Um, Elizabeth, great to have you on. Fingers crossed that we get this sooner rather than later. OK, just into CNN. Pope Francis has cancelled his meetings today due to a fever. The Vatican did not provide further details about the 86-year-old pontiff's health. Pope Francis was hospitalised, if you remember, back in March for bronchitis. Earlier in his life, he had part of one lung removed due to an infection. We will bring you any further details on this when we get them. We're back after this.
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are trading for the final session of the week ahead of the long Memorial Day holiday weekend. You can call it a firmer Friday, at least for now. Investors reacting to reports of progress in those debt ceiling talks. More on that in just a moment. Also today, important new U.S. inflation numbers. The Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation, it's called the core PCE index. That came in a little higher than expected, up 4.7% in April year over year. Month over month, prices were up too. That's actually the first rise in three months. Prices remain sticky. I think that's the bottom line. And that remains a significant worry for the Federal Reserve. As we discussed earlier in the show, two time running out for lawmakers to try and hammer out a deal to pay the U.S. government's bills. Sources say the White House and the GOP negotiators are moving closer to an agreement that GOP is Republicans, of course. The potential compromise could raise the debt ceiling, but limit federal spending levels for two years. To put all this into English for us, Greg Valliere joins us now. He's the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, welcome to the show. Are you expecting a deal of some kind by the end of the weekend? And what might that look like? Well, good morning, Julia. Yeah, I do think there'll be an agreement in principle. I don't think there's going to be an agreement where everything is finalized. I think that'll take a few more days. They have to read the bill. That's going to take uh, some time as well. But we're, we're making progress. But I would add one note of caution. The real fireworks come late next week when both houses have to approve this. And the initial reaction from the left and from the right is really hostile. I think there could be a revolt, maybe among conservative Republicans or liberal Democrats, that could delay this even further. Okay, so we have to break that down. What you're saying is you've got sort of activists on both sides. On one side, the conservatives are saying, hang on, we need to limit spending far more than we're doing. And then on the left, you've got people saying, hang on a second, people shouldn't have to be applying for work or working in order to get federal benefits. These are sort of pretty significant sticking points, Greg. Absolutely. I I think that the center will hold and that McCarthy and Chuck Schumer will have the votes. I think Schumer can get this through the Senate. The House, though, is going to be a problem. And it's possible that Speaker McCarthy might need 100 votes from Democrats to get this through the House. And you have to ask the question, are Democrats willing to stick their necks out for Kevin McCarthy? Well, stick the neck out for Kevin McCarthy, but also for President Biden. How embarrassing if this continues to go on like this for the Democrats. I mean, that's the sort of political balance that they have to ask themselves and the White House has to ask itself. Well, you're right, Julia. And I think at the end of the day, people are going to say we just cannot Mm. tolerate default. It's just too uh, dangerous, too risky to do. And I think we'll get this done. But I would say that the next really nerve-wracking period comes in about a week uh, as they try to get this thing finalized. As we're pointing out, and you're making very clear, it's going to be very difficult to agree this, to get everything into legislation and passed before that, what's now become the sort of key X date in people's minds, June the 1st, when the Treasury has said, look, the, the money's basically run out and we're going to have to make some tough choices. Greg, from the people and the conversations that you're having, do you believe that date or are there sort of this chemistry that they can use to shift things around, delay payments and and push that date back? You know, it's possible, Julia, they could wait until June 8th or 9th. That's not out of the question, but that's risky. 
in my opinion. Uh, the numbers are terrible. Receipts are coming in uh, quite weak, another set of numbers today. So I, I would say they really do have to get this done on the first. Uh, maybe Treasury can sell some assets. Uh, there's been speculation about them selling something out of the Social Security Trust Fund or the Highway Trust Fund. That could get them uh, another week or two. But I, I think this sets a really bad example, and the rest of the world looks at us as being really dysfunctional. Not for the first time, Greg, and I, I say that with respect. No, um, <laughs> for my own country has its own problems. Um, um, I was going to ask, do you think any of this matters for stock market investors, whether it's June 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th? Because so far there's been an underlying belief that even if you're rolling your eyes, there is going to be a solution here. Good question. I'd say it's uh, it's likely that the markets will shrug this off. I think once this is done, and it will get done, and we're not going to default, once this is done, we move on to two other really big stories. One is how much work does the Fed have to do, and maybe they got to hike rates one more time after today's inflation data. And then the other big, big story this summer is going to be in Ukraine. I think that the route could be on soon with Russian troops fleeing. I think there's more and more intrigue in Moscow. I think that is going to be the dominant story of the summer. Yeah, two vitally important stories. And sadly, I'm not going to ask you about either of those. I'm going to take us to a third, which was um, the fun and games earlier this week with um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his campaign launch um, to be the nominee for the Republicans in the presidential election on Twitter. Uh, and some glitches, some comedy with President Biden offering a link to a funding page yeah. that he said did work. You know, there was yeah. opportunity for all. What do you make of it? Because some of the numbers here are huge of people that at least saw, tapped in at some point and watched. You know, I, I think a year from now, people will have forgotten that the, the rollout by DeSantis was really awful and uh, amateurish. Uh, I think he can survive this, but he can't survive many more. I think he uh, still looks a little bit like he's not quite ready for prime time, and he's going to have to work on that, and not just on social issues. He's got to look at economic issues. He's got to look at geopolitics. It's just not all about transgender people. He needs to focus on a wider range of things that people care about. Yeah. Well, the bench is deep. I'm showing the pictures here of um, all the announcees so far. Um, at least some choices this time around. Greg, great to have you with us. Thank you. Greg Fellier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategy at AGF Investments. Thank you, sir. Now, a gastronomical experience at a astronomical price. This experience might leave you seeing stars. An elevated experience like no other. Dining at the edge of space. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Taking high-end dining now to new extremes. A French startup is offering flights to the edge of space in a pressurized capsule attached to a helium balloon. Stick with me. And of course, being French, food is also playing a crucial part in this experience. The company, called Zafalto, promises the finest meals for Michelin chefs as the capsule rises around 25 kilometers above the Earth. Now, that's far higher than passenger jets, which cruise at an altitude of between 8 and 11 kilometers. The firm says the craft will take off from a French spaceport, ascend for around an hour and a half at speeds of four meters a second, 
before reaching an altitude of 25 kilometers, where you'll spend the next three hours. You can see on the diagram plenty of time to eat and admire the view, followed by a slow descent back to Earth. You can see we're very excited about this on the show. Vincent Ferris-Destis is the CEO and he joins us now. Sir, welcome to the show. Very excited to talk to you. Just explain what inspired this firm. Yes, thank you very much. I'm very happy to come to you. Um, what inspired was a dream. I used to sail a lot, and my dream was to sail to the stars because, uh, yes, to provide a low carbon space voyage, you, I wanted to, to fly to the stars and be in harmony without uh, having fuel uh, to, to get there. So that, uh, this dream is coming true. This dream was, uh, uh, the beginning of Zepato was 2016, and now uh, we're about to, to fly at 25 kilometers altitude this year for test flights. Wow, so you're in the testing flight phase, but you're already selling pre-reservation tickets for 2024, so you're pretty confident that you know what you're doing and, and you're going to be up and running next year. Yeah, it's first commercial flight will be end of 2024. And we are really confident, thanks to our strong partnership with, uh, with uh, French Space Agency, European Space Agency, uh, Airbus, and uh, people who really, uh, um, really have this huge experience of uh, flying in the stratosphere, because uh, French Space Agency has uh, 60 years experience, thousands of flights up there. And we really rely on uh, all their security safety devices. And that safety is a key point for us. And uh, yes, we can afford offering, offering this dinner at 25 kilometers uh, in uh, less than two years. <laughs> I mean, I've got so many questions. There must be some brave chefs involved if they're willing to, I assume, cook or perhaps cook on the ground and then provide the food in space. Who are you speaking to in terms of chefs that are willing to willing to do this? Oh, so we, we really look forward, look forward to revealing our mission star chief's uh, offering and uh, we'll, we'll reveal it uh, later this year. But, uh -huh. uh, um, we won't have uh, the, whole, uh, the whole cuisine, the whole kitchen uh, on board uh, for the moment. Maybe step two will be to have the full cuisine with uh, three or four people just to, to prepare the, the meal but um, it will be of course a fully tailored meal and uh, from dietary requirements thinking uh, account uh, diner's preference and uh, of course that's passionate because uh, taste evolves with altitude and uh, in a different way for each person so that's a full preparation and so once in a lifetime experience it's uh, you will be full of uh, Serenity is a six hours experience, uh, three hours on the top. So you will really have plenty of time to enjoy the nicest dinner you had. Yes, you're definitely selling it. And six passengers, I believe, two pilots, and you're planning to do multiple journeys each year. You've got to talk to us about the cost, because this is the point, I think, where everybody goes, how much? Tell me how much it costs. So it's 120,000 euros, so uh, 130,000 dollars, something per like that. Per person. And uh, per person, yes, mm -hmm. for, 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 for a ticket. And uh, of course, 
um, it's a lot of development to to get to this uh, this wonderful amazing uh, travel among the stars and uh, to to be to to be fully reliable and um, we have years and years of uh, R&D. Uh, of course, uh, the balloon is huge. Uh, it's uh, something you can, it's almost 100 meters high. You can put Notre Dame or the Statue of Liberty inside the, the envelope inside the balloon. So it's something huge. You have to test a lot. We, we have already performed three different flights, test flights on board, three different prototypes in the past years. And now we will still test and test in the years to come. And of course, this is as, as a cost. And of course, having the Michelin star uh, uh, chief on board and all the exceptional uh, comfort uh, on board, this perfect design that will be very happy to soon reveal um, <laughs> that, uh, that as a cost. And uh, we're really happy to share it with a maximum of person. But for the beginning, uh, the person, the happy few, um, we'll do, we'll join. We'll be our pioneer and ambassadors. I, I can't wait to um, I can't wait to see inside. I know you're also selling pre-reservation tickets. I mentioned for around um, sort of eleven thousand dollars, which gives them people the right if they want to to go on and buy a ticket. Um, how many of those have you sold? Can you tell me? Because to your point, this costs a lot of money. This industry in general costs a lot of money in the beginning. Um, how many of those tickets have you sold? Oh, that's a, we have begun to sell tickets uh, quite recently, but uh, yes, we, we are really happy to see that a lot of people are asking us, uh, our people want to have a wedding on board, to have people uh-huh. want, to, of course, dinner. Interesting. Uh, yes, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so for, for the first year, uh, now the first year is uh, really great part. Oh, the first year is booked, so you have to get in a hurry. No. How uh, many? But, uh, yes. Are, are, you, are you keeping it a secret? Speak. You're trying to fob me off with the excitement <laughs> yes, over weddings, but you're not telling me how many. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you how many weddings we are in the first year. Oh, All right. you see, but, you've done uh, it again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're, talking, we're talking in circles. Do you know what? One of my team members did say to me, it does look like a hot air balloon. You know, how different is the material and the technology around there? Because they were a little bit concerned that I'm not quite sure what's going to hit it. But but how safe is the uh, the balloon itself that, that you're going up in? Because as we pointed out, it's going up a long way. Yeah, so quite different from an hotel balloon. Uh, we really focus on uh, on uh, on safety. Uh, you you really uh, balloon was born in France. Uh, more than two centuries ago, and it's the more uh, the more simple way to to go uh, up in the air. In fact, it's uh, hundreds of times more simple than a, uh, than an airplane or than a rocket. And so that makes it more safe, more reliable. You you have very few reasons to have a failure. So um, everything is tested a lot. We benefit from the uh, the aerospace technology. Uh, exclusivity uh, transfer from the French Space Agency. Our partners are dealing with Airbus, with Dassault, with major companies uh, in that field. Everybody has a key concern of safety first in the team. Our our head of technique is former uh, uh, chairman of quality in uh, head of quality in Airbus. So everything is shaped on safety, really to uh, to enjoy serenity on board. What we offer. Is a contemplative experience 
something amazing and you want mm. really to be like serene on board. It does look it. The images are amazing. And um, yes, you have more than emphasized the safety. So um, I'm convinced if you need any, if you need a test on me, I'm your girl. I'd love to go up and see. You can oh, let me know. I'm <laughs> looking careful. forward to, uh, to <laughs> do it. So maybe uh, two years or a little bit more. But yeah. We'll reconvene. <laughs> great to chat to you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank and have you a great very weekend. Much. Very Thank happy you. to share it with you. <laughs> see you great. very soon. Thank you. Okay, so to come, a warning for your next trip to the beach after a wave of shark attacks across the United States. That's after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Superstar Celine Dion has cancelled her entire world tour as she continues to battle with a rare neurological health condition. In a message to her fans on Twitter, the singer said, quote, it's best that we cancel everything until I'm really ready to be back on stage. I'm not giving up and I can't wait to see you again. At the end of last year, Dion revealed that she's living with stiff person syndrome, a condition that causes severe and constant muscle spasms. Tickets for her concert will be refunded from their point of purchase and we wish her well. And authorities are urging U.S. beachgoers to stay vigilant in the water after several shark attacks over the past month. Recent attacks have been reported in New Jersey, Florida and Hawaii. And just this week, a three-metre great white shark was spotted off the coast of South Carolina. The warning comes ahead of the Memorial Day weekend when people will be flocking to local beaches. As Miguel Marquez reports. Shark attacks in the last couple of years have been up across the U.S. Uh, you mentioned some of them recently. One of the more concerning ones that has just happened is down in the Turks in Caicos. This was a, a, a couple that were on a private tour. They were on a boat. They were, they were snorkeling off the reef, so a little farther out. And uh, a shark uh, took off one of the limbs of the woman who is in very serious condition right now. There was also a young woman who was bit down on the New Jersey uh, coast. She was surfing. And then down in Florida, there was a young woman who was just sitting in the water near uh, Fort Pierce. And she was bit. Uh, both of those uh, individuals were, were not bit as bad as the woman in Turks and Caicos. But here in New York, the governor has ordered more drones in the air, more boats in the water as the summer season gets going to make sure that uh, people are safe from sharks and a, and a few words of advice as well. If you see uh, schools of fish, if you see seals, don't go swimming with them because sometimes the sharks mistake you for lunch. Good grief. Wowzers, good advice there. And finally, there is no better way to end a Friday than with family. We are pleased to introduce you to the latest addition to our fabulous First Move team, baby Emma Maria Cardoso. Our senior producer, Tanya Carvalho, and her husband, Pedro, welcoming this adorable bundle of joy into the world. Emma weighing in at seven pounds, seven ounces, and we're told she has a very healthy appetite, of course, and is already expressing opinions, just like her wonderful mother. Three and a half year old Alex is also loving his new role too as big brother. Congratulations to the happy family and Tanya, we love and miss you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next and I'll see you on Monday.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.